This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I knew Mike, but I didn't know him very well. You know, I knew him by sight, and I, we talked uh, occasionally when we saw each other, and we'd cordially speak and all that good stuff when we had, a, you know, some training together or if we had, you know, a meeting to go to together or something like that. But our paths rarely crossed. Mike seemed like a normal kind of guy. Charles Mitchell is a retired police officer and detective of 42 years. He began his career in 1972 in Gwinnett County. Though working out of a different precinct than Chapel, he tells me how he and many other officers learned that one of Gwinnett County Police Department's own had been arrested for murder. They gathered everybody up as much as they could right after the arrest and they announced what had happened and, you know, that the investigation had concluded that he was responsible and everything like that. That's how I learned about it. Now, I knew that the lady had been killed, but that a police officer was involved? No, I hadn't the faintest idea that had been involved. I couldn't really believe it. I couldn't, I mean, well, I found it hard to believe because as a police officer, I have come to realize that anything's possible. <laughs> and human beings are absolutely disgusting. There was a lot of talk around, you know, that, hey, you know, if, if Mike wanted a whole bunch of money, Mike could get it out of the drug dealers and give them some protection or something, you know, or he could steal their money. Because Mike was, had a reputation for being very hard on drug people drug dealers but uh you know everybody that i know of had a real hard time believing it but until i actually talked to jack burnett jack burnett i think was the lead investigator and he and mike were friends and he did not want to investigate that when he found out that mike might be involved but he he was very, very articulate about the information and the evidence and everything like that. You know, he told me, he says, he says, I've looked at this thing a hundred different ways. He said, with the evidence as it is, he said, yeah, it, Mike did it. But now I tell you what, you talk to Jack Burnett, whatever he says, I would consider to be gospel. Because I tell you, Jack Burnett, he was always, always 100%, 110%. You know, I've heard people say he's innocent, you know, that he got framed and everything like that. And I'm not going to say he didn't, but I'm going to tell you what, if he got framed, somebody did an excellent job of framing him without making it look too obvious. I'm Sean Kipe. From Imperative Entertainment, this 
is in the land of lies. Is Mike Chappell an innocent man, or is his murder conviction sound? For the past nine months now, I've been trying to piece together this bizarre story to find that very answer. Henry has shared so many documents with me, it's been a little hard to keep up with them all, or to even realize how potentially important they are at first. And as I pushed more and more for Henry to produce solid evidence of Chapel's innocence, as he told me he had, we began to realize that he was missing numerous documents from the case file. So together, we headed to the Gwinnett County Superior Courthouse to see what we could find. So you can step over here and grab the How you doing, man? After passing through the metal detectors, we headed down the long, marbled hall to the records room and requested any case files or transcripts related to Chapel's case. It took some time to even find Chapel's files, and there was a sudden flurry of activity behind the bulletproof glass partitions. When they call us back to the window, we learn that there are 17 banker boxes full of files, and that several of them are sealed, which we weren't allowed to view. They're officially sealed. Interesting. And he said, like, I said, why would that be three years later? And he goes, I have no idea. He said, let me go talk to my supervisor. 17 boxes. We began digging through the boxes one by one, not really knowing what we were looking for, hoping maybe it would jump out at us. I wanted to start back at the beginning and verify everything Henry has told me, not just relying on Chapel's memory, Philip Sullivan's reports, or Pamela Holcomb's files. Over several hours of searching, we found documentation about Michael Thompson and Amy Parker, including original copies of their statements. Uh, but he still would have been with her. So when did he say that he was with her at 8.30? He said he, they mother? finished eating at 8.30. His story and her story don't line up. Right. And she says he left during the window of the crime. He's gone, and he returns with a cup of ice and some brownies from Subway. And there was a Subway ribbon straw found in the back of her car. Mm-hmm. And why did he go to Subway if he had just eaten at Waffle right. House with his mother? Steve Mitchell's testimony about cooperating in drug buys and working with undercover agents. Have you ever worked for law enforcement or with law enforcement? I've been a confidential source for them where I would go out undercover. The person that solicited me was Gwinnett County Police Intelligence, Greg Browning. He introduced me to GBI narcotics out of Athens Bureau, Steve Burroughs. Before that, I had contacted the DEA, which I think was in May of 92, Ray Morell. You had contacted them? Yes. To provide information and work for them? True. And handwritten notes regarding evidence, witness and suspect interviews, and testimony. Index to witnesses. Here we go. Dennis Miller, Boris Korzak, Mike Rionis, Bill Cardi, Michael Thompson, Stephen Mitchell, Michael Cook, Brian Reddy, Jack Burnett, Carl Cowder, Who's Quint Rutland? Quint Rutland. Bulldog. He's the one that testified about Morgan uh, using Michael Thompson as his do-boy really? in drug trafficking. He's one of the Gwinnett County drug traffickers. He also implicated Danny Porter. Really? At trial? Mm-hmm. Really? Yep. Well, how do you see- I begin to see that 
As crazy as some of this sounds, here I am looking at it in black and white. Though much of this corroborated what Henry had already told me or shown to me, I could now see for myself that nothing had been altered or taken out of context to suit Chapel's perspective or his story. While our search was fruitful, to me, it didn't provide the proverbial smoking gun to back up Chapel's claim of innocence. The things that I had hoped to find, like the raincoat, blood samples, and other physical evidence, continued to elude me. And Henry. Is it possible that those things no longer exist, having been discarded long ago with no hope of ever being retested using today's advanced technology? Still, I'm not dissuaded. I'll keep digging. But one name stuck out to me when looking through page after page of documentation. Mike Riotis, Bill Cardi, Dennis Miller, Boris Korczak. Boris Korczak. Where have I heard that name before? His name is Boris Korczak, and he was the manager of an importing company in Denmark. What he really was, was a Soviet agent, a major in the KGB. And for eight years, he worked for the CIA, a double agent. He has never been before a television camera until now. My working for the CIA is described with two words, which sound Axis agent. I succeeded in getting into the KGB, which is not an easy thing at all. Uh, can you say anything about the nature of your work? I'm afraid that's classified. This double agent kind of work can be quite dangerous. If the KGB finds out, obviously uh, you become a target of theirs. There's no other way but death. And... Boris Korchak had an attempt made on his life by a KGB assassin in 1981 while walking into a grocery store with his young son, Robert. A small poison pellet struck him in the back, just above his kidney, and though he narrowly escaped death, it would be nearly 18 months before he fully recovered. He has since spoken about this and his time as a double agent publicly many times over the years on TV programs all over the world, like the one you just heard from CNN with Daniel Shore. But what is a confirmed CIA KGB double agent's name doing in Mike Chappell's case file? To find out, I spoke with Boris's son, Robert, as Boris himself is in failing health. My name is Robert Korchak. I'm the son of ex-CIA agent Boris Korchak, who was actually the lead investigator on this case. My dad had started working on the case because, given his background, he, he was thought to be a good choice. By 1998, Chapel had lost both his appeal and a habeas filing requesting the testing of DNA and was now preparing to file a motion for new trial. Chappell's new attorney hired Boris Korchak as an investigator, and when the two came to Georgia, Robert Korchak came along with his father to help. So uh, the first trip to Georgia was kind of on the down low, quiet, and it was just to talk to the family, try to talk to Mike, get a lay of the land, you know, understand the case. And my dad decided that he wanted to, uh, you know, actually work the case. I was the low man on the totem pole. I was doing mostly uh, uh, computer searches. I was doing some minor interviewing, logistics basically. So we started collecting all documentation from the trial, 
from you know witnesses at the time and basically trying to figure out what went on did timelines match up did everything make sense and the more my dad looked the less it made sense then it came time to actually go down to Georgia and talk to Mike Chapel but the plan this time was to stir up Danny Porter before leaving for Georgia so a month or, or two before the trip was to take place my dad did everything in his power to make sure Danny knew we were coming for example it, it was posted on his website the devil went down to georgia was playing on repeat on the website and anybody who would listen was told yeah we're coming on such and such a date so it it was a definite intentional idea of notifying Danny Porter short of picking up the phone and calling him Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. When Robert and Boris Korchak, along with Chapel's attorney, headed for Georgia to begin their investigation, Robert tells me they were met with a response from Danny Porter, who seemed to be sending a message of his own. Randy Mott, uh, who was uh, the attorney who was going to take on the Chapel case, he was he was going along with us, and we drove down you know the, the long stretch of 95. I forget what road leads into Gwinnett off of I-95. But as soon as we hit the border of Gwinnett County, along both sides of the highway, there were rows of Gwinnett County Police Department cars with their lights flashing. They didn't have anyone pulled over. It wasn't just one spot. It wasn't an accident. Both sides of the road, going each way, there were lines, several cars long, of you know Gwinnett County Police Department cars with their with their lights going and this would be every mile or so that that's how they were spread out which was surprising so that was that was the first notification we had that yeah Danny knew we were coming and this was definitely a show to say hey this is my town watch your step it wasn't the most welcoming of surprises <laughs> Robert Korchak isn't the first or last person to say they felt intimidation from the Gwinnett County Police Department and the district attorney's office. But he says that was just a sign of things to come for Chapel's new defense team. And then things became more interesting. Danny Porter tried to deny Mike Chapel's meeting with both my dad and his new attorney Randy Mott. We weren't able to get our hands on evidence to examine evidence. It was hard enough getting pictures of the evidence, never mind actually getting them. So Danny Porter did everything in his power to make sure that 
we weren't going to be able to do much of anything. Eventually, he was forced to let us talk to Mike Chappell. And in theory, he should have no reason to. If Mike was guilty, as he claimed in court, well, why not let the guy talk to an attorney and let the attorney find out for himself, let the private investigator find out for himself? There's nothing to hide. The only reason to put up such defenses is if you've got something to hide. So with, without a doubt, somebody had something to hide. The more Boris Korchak and his team looked into Chapel's case, the more convinced they became that something just wasn't right about it all. They interviewed dozens of witnesses, and they did eventually come to the belief as well that Emma Jean Thompson's blood had been planted in Chapel's patrol car, a belief that wasn't necessarily easy to come by, as Robert tells me. And that's what I hate about it. I, I hate conspiracy theories. I hate that stuff. I know how it sounds. I know how my own life story sounds to strangers. That's why I don't like talking about this stuff. But this started adding up. It didn't, there was no other explanation why a district attorney would be throwing up roadblocks. This should have been just another, all right, it was a guilty guy in prison. Sure, go talk to him. Don't talk to him. I don't care what you do. But it was the opposite reaction. He shouldn't have cared, but he did, and he cared greatly. The Korchaks and attorney Randy Mott took their investigation as far as they could. But in the end, it proved once again to not be enough. You, you reach a point where you just can't go forward anymore. And that's what happened. But uh, yeah, my dad absolutely believed that uh, Mike Chappell was innocent. He absolutely believed that Mike Chappell was a good cop, that he certainly didn't murder Emma Jean Thompson. The timeline of events of him being in the gym, that doesn't add up either. Nothing that you look at uh, with any scrutiny adds up in that case. It's a miscarriage of justice. It never should have happened. None of this ever should have happened. The man should be home with his family, with his kids, enjoying his retirement. But before the motion for new trial hearing began, Boris had made contact with Steve Mitchell. The defense wanted to use Mitchell's experience working with undercover agents in drug buys, as well as gain access to the intelligence he had gathered through his surveillance. The goal was to show that there were Gwinnett County police officers working hand-in-hand -hand with drug dealers, just as Chapel had claimed, and that it was possible that he had been set up or framed for Emma Jean Thompson's murder because of what he was uncovering. They also aimed to show that he did not receive a fair trial due to the ineffective counsel of previous attorney Johnny Moore and several pieces of key evidence allegedly being mishandled, manufactured, or being withheld from the court altogether. Mitchell testified to everything that we talked about in previous episodes regarding his surveillance findings. When asked if he could actually produce these tapes for the court, providing evidence implicating J.P. Morgan and other officers at Gwinnett County Police Department in drug trafficking, he said he could. The only problem was that Mitchell had hid the cache of VHS and audio tapes, as he had a habit of doing by that point. He told the judge they were hidden in a remote spot of a wilderness area in the mountains of North Georgia for safekeeping. 
I've read the transcripts of this testimony, so I can confirm that this conversation did take place. Now, the judge, when I said I had this, you know, evidence in the mountain, he laughed, just a derogatory kind of grunty laugh and says, huh, bear's done destroyed that. Then they give me a subpoena for, you know, eight tapes, wires, any, you know, anything. And I says, okay, let's go. And they were like, bring them back. Went out to the parking lot and then go home, you know, went straight to the mountains. Mitchell says he gathered up a few supplies and left to retrieve the tapes. Now, this is where things really went off the rails. Once he arrived at a parking area near the base of the mountain, Mitchell says he headed out into the woods and retrieved the tapes, tucking them into a backpack. And that's when he noticed it. He wasn't alone. You know, I start through the woods to head where I'm going, and uh, probably about two hours, maybe more, I pick up two people. They're following me in their late 20s, early 30s, same haircut, same fanny bag that you can put a pistol in. The two of them, I'm watching them, and they're watching people and looking. You know, several times I'd have to cross the trail to get where I was going, you know, and I'd pick them up. and. Then when I pretty well exhaust them, I end up with two people waiting at a different area. They take over the chase. Mitchell zigzagged his way through the forest to lose the men that were tailing him. He headed towards a popular hiking area in giant granite boulder, serving as a scenic overlook called Blood Mountain, nearly 20 miles away. Once arriving there, he decided to wait it out and rest. Blood Mountain. I come up, not the trail, but the sheer side of the mountain. I can hear some voices, and I listen a while, and I, you know, tell that it's people talking. And I push back, so like Mount Laura or whatever, and here I come up, and they're looking at me like, God, where'd you come from? The guy says, you wouldn't have a smoke on you, would you? I open my backpack, pull back up trash bag and showed him the tapes. Got some VHS tapes. Dark hits. We're sitting still up on that boulder. Here comes two guys in and they're checking everybody's backpack and tent. Not saying a word to nobody and it freaks this guy out. And I tell him to be quiet and they never looked up. Mitchell spent the night in the forest, hidden in the thick brush. The next day, thinking he was now safe, he headed for his car. I go on my way the next day. Then about six, eight hours later, there are additional two people. Very athletic build, except for one. He was more like a weightlifter, but about six foot tall, but like a tank. He's the one that hit me, and I blocked it. Good block. And... It bruised my lungs to where I was spitting pink loogies. 
he was strong. Mitchell says he got into a physical encounter with one of the men he was trying to evade. He tells me that at this point, he was now aggressively being chased through the forest. I climbed this real sheer area where you're actually reaching up and grabbing the, the roots and the bottoms of saplings and trees. And he's about 25 feet, 30 feet behind me, and the other guy's just a few feet behind him. They're big, white, quartz, oblong rock. I tell him, hey, catch. And I pitch it to him and hit him. He goes flopping down to he hits a tree. They didn't speak. No yelling. No saying stop. No nothing. After losing his assailants again, Mitchell says he made his way back to the area where his car was left parked. He scanned the area for any signs of the men who had been chasing him, but saw no one. Coming back, you know, trying to get to my car, there was no evidence that they was around my car, but then again, I didn't spend time. I, you know, in the end, they uh, caught me, hit me in the head with the butt of the pistol right in the middle of the forehead and uh, took my backpack. There couldn't be but one reason that they didn't just shoot your ass was uh, they wanted the, any artifacts to anything that I was saying, you know, any evidence. The backpack and tapes were now gone. Mitchell says that while he rested there, regaining his composure and collecting himself, a small party pulled into the parking area. Seeing Mitchell bloodied and looking worse for the wear, they offered help. They can see the old blood running down my eyebrows and all that stuff, you know, done dried and, and spent a night away from everybody. And so, you know, I hadn't got water, nothing. Dealing with the nausea, the dizziness, etc. And we'll come off the, this mountain and Sheriff's Department shows up and makes a report. I filed an open records request with the Union County Sheriff's Department for this incident report to verify Steve Mitchell's story. But unfortunately, they don't have records on file that go back that far. But Mitchell tells me there is actually more to this story. That guy on top of the rock with me at Blood Mountain went home, evidently was very afraid and told his mom and their neighbor was, from what I was told, was an ex, uh, either assistant DA or DA, somewhere like the cab or somewhere, and called Danny Porter. Danny Porter called my parents, trying to find where I'm at, and said that I was, you know, in danger, that some people were pursuing me. And he said he put a bolo out on me because I was in danger. Mitchell goes a step further and says that when he later contacted Danny Porter, Porter actually offered him a job, working for him in some capacity, and answering only to him. I told him, I man, that, that'd be wonderful. A year, even two years ago. But I've sent reporters to you with tapes time and time again. And you told them I was a meth head. You told them I was mental health. You told them, you know, craziness stuff and wouldn't even listen to, to the tapes, nothing. So you've shown yourself to be 
anything but honorable or trustworthy. I couldn't possibly work for somebody like you because you are a large part of the problem. Of course, I did ask Danny Porter about this when I spoke with him. <laughs> like as a district attorney's investigator? No. I don't I didn't hire informants. That wasn't my job. I was a prosecutor. That's not true. None of that's true. I mean, I have a pretty good memory. I would have remembered. So Steve Mitchell is a guy that lives in a car behind his parents' house. An old abandoned car. So, I mean, I, you know, I think that Steve Mitchell stuff, I don't place any credence in that at all. Because between what happened afterwards when they brought in the police foundation and Randy Mott and Boris and that bunch, it just... <clears throat> It went off the rails at that point. And, you know, the conspiracy series, Boris was a former KGB guy, and it just went into the twilight zone at that point. So what's the truth here? Did Steve Mitchell make up this wild story about being chased through the forest, being attacked, and having evidence stolen from him? Or is Danny Porter conveniently not remembering this? I will say that Mitchell does provide quite a bit of detail in everything he's told me. But maybe he's just a good storyteller. While Steve Mitchell was gallivanting off through the forest on his recovery mission, Chapel's new defense team, led by attorney Randy Mott, who, by all accounts, was in over his head, was petitioning the court to get Chapel a new trial. Mott cited statements of several people who claimed they were harassed or intimidated by investigators for openly supporting Chapel after his arrest. Yeah, our life was turned pretty upside down. That's Erin Olson, but in 1993, she was married to Chapel's brother, Greg, making her Erin Chapel, which also happens to be Mike's wife's name. But, um, my name was spelled E-R-I-N, and the other Aaron is E-R-E-N. So there was always confusion about, you know, Aaron Chapel. People would get it confused. So when all of that was going on in Gwinnett County, it caused the whole family. It doesn't matter which one. It was devastating for everyone. I was an insurance agent. And I worked at an agency in Lawrenceville, and the investigators called my boss and told him to be careful of Aaron Chapel because a woman was killed and money was stolen, and Mike and Aaron needed money for their expenses and, you know, all the stuff that the gym and everything else. And they, they made that call assuming it was the other Aaron. And so basically, you know, I was a single mom because uh, Greg and I had gotten divorced. And so, you know, I was trying to raise a small child and I depended on that job. And, you know, he, he basically pushed me out the door. Then I, I started my own agency in Buford, because at that point, the, the plan was already in place. 
um, because of the way I was being treated. Then when I got to Buford and he was found guilty, um, my district managers, I mean, of course, everybody knew it. And my district managers were, um, you know, it was just uncomfortable. So I, I left that position and uh, I, I had to start an insurance agency with a different name. I had gotten married at that point, and so my name became Aaron Olson. So just having that chapel name was very, very, in Gwinnett County, was very difficult. I asked Aaron if she felt there was any possibility that Mike Chapel was capable of murder. Absolutely not. Mike and Greg were very um, good guys, I, I guess you'd call them. They were, you know, wanted to catch the bad guy all the time. And Mike was a big guy. I would call him a gentle giant, really. I mean, I, I mean, I don't know how else to put it. He was always looking for the bad guy. So, you know, I don't know what else you could possibly say, but there's, I, I never ever believed that he was even closely, remotely capable of any such act. I just, there was no way, no way. So, I mean, I don't know how else to say it, but it's just not possible. And, you know, with the way that they came after Mike and they destroyed Greg's career, they came after me, which they thought I was the other Aaron. I'd say it, it was all the way down from Danny Porter, all the way down to the investigators. You know, they, they just were out to search and destroy. Aaron Olson isn't the only one who felt pressure from investigators. Some were still too uncomfortable to speak on record about their experiences. Like one person who says they received so many threats from the district attorney's office for speaking out publicly in support of Chapel that they actually had to hire an attorney and issue a cease and desist order. We heard former fireman David Pierce tell of how he was being pushed into agreeing with statements that went against what he was positive he remembered concerning Chapel's departure from Firehouse 14. And we've heard Steve Mitchell tell of multiple times he was attacked, even having his house set on fire because he was sticking his nose where it didn't belong. And even I have been trolled on social media by a current employee of the district attorney's office and actually had a former employee who worked under Danny Porter approach me and my family while having dinner at a restaurant. All of this makes me question, is this how a murder investigation is really conducted? Is this normal? Should the facts and evidence in a case not be enough to stand up on its own without anyone feeling threatened or pushed in one direction or the other, as these people have claimed? These types of allegations seem to have continued years after Chapel's request for a new trial was denied. In early 2011, amateur investigator Pam Holcomb contacted Carl Cowder. Now remember, he was the key eyewitness who identified Chapel at the crime scene in a photo lineup. In a statement written by Holcomb, she says, Carl H. Cowder was the state's star eyewitness. In fact, the only eyewitness placing Mike Chapel at the scene. Holcomb goes on to say, I contacted Mr. Cowder and visited with him for an afternoon. He recanted his testimony he had given at trial. He stated he didn't wish to testify but was pressured by the district attorney's office. Upon meeting with officials from the DA's office, he stated he was 
schooled on what and how to say his testimony. Mr. Cowder pointed out that upon taking the witness stand, he was not sworn in. The trial transcript does show this to be true. He states that he had been drinking the morning of testimony and at lunch before retaking the stand. Mr. Cowder wishes to come forward and tell the truth of April 15, 1993, but he has been threatened with perjury if he does. Holcomb goes on to write, Mr. Cowder elaborated that Gwinnett County Police Department and the DA's office, quote, railroaded Mike Chapel, and stated, I believe Mike got a raw deal. I tried to find Carl Cowder to speak with him myself, even speaking with his ex-wife, who confirmed that he seems to have disappeared like a ghost. But I'll keep trying. Henry tells me even he has felt somewhat intimidated at times while researching Chapel's case when writing his book. And, you know, you have to be cognizant of who some of the people are that this story has been written about, right? Some of these guys that I'm essentially writing about, you know, hey, they're bad guys. They're the worst kind of bad guys because they're bad guys that have badges. And, and if they could do what they did to Michael Chapel, you know, think what they could do to somebody like me. You know, we were cognizant that, hey, this, you know, these folks are about to know what we're up to. They're about to know that this book's coming out. I'm about to have a target on my back. And, and I'm, you know, I'm just a guy, got a family. That's not a really great feeling. But Mike, in all seriousness, said to me, Henry, I would not respect you any less if you didn't do this. Once you put this out there, some pretty bad people are gonna know who you are. And he said, I, I can't tell you how much I've appreciated working with you, but you know, this is, this is for real. And if you choose to bail right now, I won't respect you any less. There's been some smoke to that. You know, there's been some smoke around that fire. I've had somebody pretty sure case in my house. You know, that, that's happened. We've had verified former members of the Gwinnett County District Attorney's Office infiltrate our little private advocacy group in attempts to discredit me. And some of them have reached out to me personally and pretty much let me know that I'm, you know, doing some pretty risky things and letting this uh, information be out there. and implied that, you know, maybe it's me that, you know, should be, you know. Henry didn't need to finish that thought because I knew what he meant. And now that I too have felt that heat in my own small way, maybe that means he's onto something. In the Land of Lies is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was written and reported by me, Sean Kipe, and I wrote and performed the original music score. Story editor is Jason Hoke, and executive producers are Jason Hoke and Gino Falsetto. 
Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. Sound engineering by Shane Freeman. Creative producer is Henry Ball. And you can find Henry's book, Michael Chapel, at storiedpress.store. For updates about this and all of my podcasts, follow me on social media at Sean Kipe. If you like the show, tell your friends and leave a review. And as always, thanks for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.